safe drivers save up to 20% with insurance. Get a quote at AAA.com slash insurance. With all of the savings I get when I drive, I'm having the time of my life. Driving safe all right. Insurance. Save me so much in my car. Driving safe all right. Insurance. I've dreamed of saving for so long. I'm saving big all right. Safe drivers save up to 20% with insurance. Get a quote at AAA.com slash insurance. What's up, everybody? You're listening to the All Things Dave podcast, a podcast dedicated to all the freaks, geeks, losers, goobers, podcasters, and fellow YouTubers. I'm your host, Phantom Dark Dave. Did you see the episode? Who is Victoria Price? Well, she's the daughter of legendary actor and horror icon Vincent Price. This is Vincent Price Week, and so we're kicking it off with this classic interview that Brian host of the Terrible Terror podcast, and myself did back in 2019. So kick back and enjoy what is one of the coolest interviews and greatest memories that Brian and I share. And now, the moment you've all been waiting for, she is the most positive, energetic, and happy-go-lucky person, well, that I've ever seen. And she just so happens to be the daughter of legendary actor Vincent Price. Please welcome to the show, Victoria Price. Hi, you guys. Thanks for having me on the show. Wow, that is just about the nicest thing anyone said about me. And a, a couple of years ago, that wouldn't have been true. I, I didn't feel so happy and joyful, and and now I do. And so that's pretty awesome to have that reflected back to me. Thank you. Victoria, the reason I start off with that is I was trying to prep for this show, and I was like, I need to go see some other interviews that Victoria has done. I need to read her vibe, get her muse, and see what kind of interview this is going to be. And I literally found myself just being jealous and going, I want what she's having. That is a beautiful smile, and she seems like she has it all figured out. And that was how I really wanted to get into this show here is – People know you as the daughter of Vincent Price, but there's so much more to it. Just like your father, everybody knows him as a horror icon, but he has done so much more than that. And you yourself are more than just a legendary actor's daughter. You yourself have put quite a name for yourself. You're a writer, you're traveling the world. And I wanted to know, what is it about that your upbringing that you've had that has kind of turned you into this positive and inspirational person? Well, I have to say, it's both my parents, but at first it was really my dad. My dad was one of those people, I I really feel this, like when he walked into a room, people lit up from the inside out. You know, he was one of those people who just exuded joy. Even though he made scary movies, you can see it in his movies. And I think that's one of the reasons he's remained so iconic. I I read something recently where it was a new study that named the most influential films and actors of all time. And they did it in a new way by looking at how often 
these people or films are referenced throughout culture. And my dad was named the most popular or influential or uh, horror actor. And I thought about that. And I thought, you know, I think that's because who he was came through all of the roles he played. And he, as an individual, was somebody who was so filled with joy and generosity of spirit. He wasn't a perfect person. I mean, he wasn't a saint, but he was an amazing human being. And, you know, I sort of lost kind of my own thread for a while in my life. I felt like I had become consumed with being a workaholic and I wasn't a very happy person. And at the moment that I really realized I had to do something to change my life or it wasn't going to go well for me, it happened to be my dad's 100th birthday year. And there were these events all over the world celebrating my dad's life. And so I went out and I kind of stepped into his shoes in a way. And by doing that, and I did it for the fans, I thought, you know, they really want to know what he was like. And I'm going to try and sort of reflect back to them so they can have a feeling of what my dad was like. And when I did that, I remembered what he was like. And I remembered how full of joy he was. And I remembered what it felt like to have a life full of joy. And I thought, I've got to get that back. I've got to have that feeling back. It took a while. It took actually doing something very odd. I created eventually a daily practice of joy so that I wouldn't let myself off the hook, so that I would show up to joy every single day. My dad did that a little more, I think, innately than most people did, and that's why he had that quality. But all of us have the capacity to access it if we actually invite joy into our lives. When we invite joy into our lives, it changes us. I think that's how people feel when they watch Vincent Price movies. Oh, so if I want to feel the joy of life, I just now have to step into Victoria Price's shoes. Ah, I like that. Well, <laughs> you know, certainly I'm out there in the in the joy trenches with everyone else. I'm really committed to showing up to joy every single day of my life and not letting myself off the hook. And that's really cool. It's an amazing way to live. I really love how you talk about kind of the, the influence with your father and in growing up for myself, you know, my first experience with him actually was the Muppets and Sesame mm. Street. And yeah. so in, in my grandfather, and he was such a huge fan uh, as well. And so a lot of the films that I've seen, especially when it comes to classic, like horror films have all been from there. Uh, did you have any experiences like being on the set or any memories of those, like kind of like more, I don't know, I, I want to say like kid friendly programs. Cause even like, the 13 Ghosts of Scooby-Doo, like the voice that comes from, that's what's most iconic for me when I think about your father. I will have to say that I'm going to happily take um, some of the credit for that because my dad was a month shy of his 51st birthday when I was born. And he was a super, super busy man making all of those scary movies, the, the Corman films. And, and so he was on the road all the time. And, but he was not really in those films speaking to my generation because we were just little kids and he didn't want to be someone's old dad and he didn't want to be someone who my friends didn't get and so he saw in 60s television this opportunity to open himself up to a whole new generation and they were my peers you know my friends and when he did that, I think the other thing that came through really loud and clear for him was that a lot of old 
older people. And now, of course, you know, I'm that age that he was when he was making things like Egghead, you know, playing Egghead and the Batman and things like that. People, we either sort of expand or contract as we get older. And I'm sorry to say that most older people kind of contract. We wither up a little bit because we think we know too much and the world is a scary place and we should sort of grab onto our safety nets and hold them while we can. And right now in the news, we're constantly being told all the things that we should be scared of and that could go wrong and all of these things. My dad realized that he was just a big kid at heart. And so I grew up with a man who is was in his 50s and 60s, even in his 70s. He did a, um, he did a, a TV, well, a, a documentary special about all the best roller coasters in the United States because he loved roller coasters. And he wanted to ride all of them. Somebody said, would you do this? They're scary. He's like, are you kidding? Absolutely. I get to ride them. So he was this big kid at heart. And he saw that as being a way of staying young at heart. And I think that that's something we have to consciously remember to do because it's really easy to talk ourselves into the world being such a scary place. We should just stay with what's safe and familiar. I had heard you say this in an interview before that originally your dad wasn't considering becoming a horror icon. Like, he didn't have his goals set on particularly one genre or another, but it was as he got older, he realized that he was able to embrace and accept that role and, I guess, blossom in it. And I was just wondering, what was it that changed in life to where, I don't know if you saw this or not, but where your dad's out? Because I remember films such as Laura, which is a fantastic movie, and he is amazing. Yeah. And he has been in so many Turner Classic movies. You can go Three Musketeers. You can go so many different routes. He was in two versions of Tower of London. But then eventually he's doing episodes of Night Gallery, and he transfers over to Alfred Hitchcock Presents and everything. And then the movies, all of a sudden, they start to get a little campy and a lot of fun. You mentioned the right. Roger Corman movies. And then there's this whole line of movies where... He's guesting with Christopher Lee. He's guesting with Boris Karloff. He shows up with uh, Peter Lorre. I mean, and then all of a sudden, you could see that transformation on screen. And I was just wondering if that was a little bit what you were dipping into right there. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, he, he had a great philosophy of life. He had a poem that he actually uh, spoke a verse of at the talk he gave for my high school graduation. He was our commencement speaker. And it's a poem by E.E. E. Cummings. And it's a poem about gratitude. Um, I thank you, God, for most this amazing day, for the leaping greenly spirit of trees and a blue true dream of sky, for everything which is infinite, which is natural. And I'm listening to this poem in my high school graduation. He ends with it, and I'm thinking, I wonder why my dad picked this. You know, he's not like a big person talking about God in public and, you know, trees. I knew my dad was kind of the guy who would rather, like, see a painting of a tree than an actual tree. And then he got to the last word after everything which is infinite, which is natural. And the last word was, which is yes. And all of a sudden I was like, oh, my gosh, of course. My dad was a man who said Yes. You know, so why did he do the Muppets in the first season? Everyone was like, a primetime puppet show? Like, what's the deal with that? So a lot of people were sort of going, I don't know. I don't know about primetime puppets. My dad said, yes. Well, then, you know, by the second season, everybody wanted to be on the Muppets. When a a producer named Quincy Jones called him and said, hey, you know, there's this uh, young star who 
you know, he's trying to break out on his own into a solo career. You know, what do you think about doing uh, an album with him? It's sort of this poem. It's called a rap. Well, that was Thriller. And same with Tim Burton. Tim Burton, he met Tim Burton through Disney. He showed um, my dad some of the things he was working on, one of which was a, a short movie about a little boy who wants to grow up to be Vincent Price. And my dad narrates it. And out of that comes Edward Scissorhands, my dad's swan song. So my dad went through life saying yes, and I've come to believe that's just an unbelievable philosophy for life, because if you think about it, let's take this podcast, for example. You can you know, say to me, hey, do you want to be on the podcast? If I say no, that's the end of that conversation. I'm not on the podcast. We don't have this interview. No one hears anything. Anything that might happen as a result of our connection is not going to happen with a no. It's not even really going to happen with a maybe. I met some guy in Portland. I was a little bit mortified because he said, you know, I've been emailing you for six years about this project. He said, I'm a patient guy and I'm here asking you again. That was something that I was concerned that I didn't have the permission, the ability to give him the permission to do. But there was something about him standing there going, hey, I'm here. I'm a patient guy. This is something I really believe in. And I'm going to tell you again why I think it's okay for you to give me permission to do this. And I suddenly realized, like, I needed a little taste of my own medicine. Of course I should say yes. I had to give him the caveat that maybe it wasn't something I totally had the permission to give the rights to. But in terms of my part of it, of course I was going to say yes. But all along I've been like, eh, you know, I don't know, six years. What am I, nuts? So the bottom line is, we have to say yes in order to have the experiences in life that are going to change us. And that's something my dad just inherently knew and did. And it's something I've had to relearn uh, from asking him to kind of be my, my mentor again, even though he's been gone for over 25 years. I find that absolutely amazing, that philosophy. It's funny because in this last year, it's been a little rough for me because I recently lost my grandfather, but a lot of your dad's philosophy is also in his philosophy. He was always a kid at heart. And he's the reason that I love the things that I love. And I always looked up to him. You know, it was a guy that taught me how to read from comic books. He basically said that if you want to do this, you've got to, you've got to make sure that you read this to me because I'm getting old. But, you know, it was that love of just kind of just doing whatever came to him, just those random trips where he'd pick us up and we'd go somewhere or like, like you're, you're saying with your father, he rarely said no. He helped everybody in his life. And it's amazing mm -hmm. hearing you talk and seeing that side of your father that maybe we don't know or people that are listening don't really know about him. And people may not know it, but like, you know, with your grandfather, I'm sure, and I think this is true of my dad, you know, people felt it being around your grandfather, and people feel it. It's it's a liberating feeling to be around something like that. It just, it can shift your whole being, and you don't have to turn it into a philosophy. It just being open to it. It's like, okay, yeah, I'll do that. Yeah, great. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's absolutely beautiful to hear that. So talking about saying yes more than no, was there a time where Vincent did say no? Were there any roles, whether it be movies or TV shows, where he declined a role and later regretted not doing it? Huh. Well, I know one role that he auditioned for and didn't get, and he it was one of those things that sort of niggled him a lot in later life. Um, he auditioned for a part in Gone with the Wind, 
And uh, it was the part of Ashley Wilkes that went to Leslie Howard. And I remember him saying, you know, but I was from the South. Leslie Howard was English, you know. And I think he, he in some way felt like that would have given him a whole different start to his career. But, you know, the fact of the matter was, in, in, in reality, the beginning of his career had its challenges because people didn't know what to do with him. And they didn't know what to do with him because he was super handsome, but he was not a typical leading man because he was really kind of uncomfortable being a leading man. He was uncomfortable with that kind of what I think he saw as sort of, it was too ego-based, you know? It was something that sort of said, I'm this handsome guy and that's how people should see me. He saw himself as a character actor and he liked being a character actor. So that, I think, is really why he excelled at the horror because here's this man who's the least scary person on the planet and he gets to play these roles where he scares people. So in that sense, it was absolutely being a character actor, being a, being a horror movie actor for him, for Vincent Price, was being a character actor. And he loved that. He thought villains were so much fun to play. And uh, so, you know, in that sense, I think something that, that he regretted, you know, or wished had happened differently ended up being a, a total blessing. Blessing in disguise, I guess. Yeah. Did he have a particular role that maybe he favored the most? You know, he, there were a lot of parts that he played that I think he really loved. Uh, certainly the, the character in Theater of Blood, because he loved Shakespeare and he loved poetry and he loved verse. And so he got to play this ham actor who there was a grain of truth to his discontent because he may have been a ham actor, but he was a beautiful speaker of verse who adored Shakespeare, even as the actor, you know, let alone as, as Vincent Price, for whom that was true. And so uh, I think there, that was a part that he really loved. I know that I think Tomb of Lygia was a, a favorite of his. And then some of the earlier movies, a, a real important part, of course, was Laura. But an, another part that was a, a huge breakthrough for him was uh, Dragonwick. It was a part he really wanted. He lost about 60 pounds to get the part. And it was something that he cared passionately about getting because he felt that it was the kind of... He, he understood that who he was was really a, a, a gothic villain. It was gothic horror to which um, he felt that, felt best suited. And, and that's really what that part was. I think Dragonwick is, is very much like the Poe films 20 years before. Kind of going in a, a different angle here, I, I know that your father did a lot of odd comical roles like uh, the Dr. Goldfoot movies, which I discovered last year for the first time, are I think some of the most fun I've had watching kind of like that old campy type of film. <laughs> yes. But I know that a lot of people have parodied him as well, like Dan Aykroyd has. And one of my favorite ones is Bill Hader in about 2005. He did for SNL. He did these like weird like scenarios where everything was going wrong through a holiday trip and he's parodying your father, what would he have thought about the parodies or uh, of him? Or is that something you think that he would have enjoyed? Like seeing loved like, him. loved them. I think he would have loved Bill haters in particular, because <laughs> I think there's something that Bill captured that was so genius. You know, my dad was kind of the person who, I mean, here he was this horror actor, but he was in many ways kind of this normal guy. 
you know, and in those scenarios where he's like hosting that show, everything goes wrong. You know, he's trying to be like the good host and set everything up. And, you know, he's got Liberace and James Dean and Judy Garland and everybody's falling apart and completely debauched. And he's like, wait, wait, we got a family show here. And I think, you know, there's something about that character that it was a really genius idea on, on Bill Hader's part to, to kind of recognize that in many ways, one of the things that my dad did best was sort of connect people. And here he is trying to do this as the TV host. and Everybody showed up, you know, completely messed up. So I think he would have loved it. And also, you know, any actor recognizes that if people are in some way mimicking you or or like the Simpsons, for example, that's an honor. And you set yourself up if you're an actor to be to be in the public view. And you're you uh, right now there's a lot of talk about what is or isn't acceptable in in humor. But the bottom line is you're a public figure. That part of your life, the public part of your life, you've really opened yourself up to being to being made into a caricature of yourself. And if you see it the right way, which my dad would have, I think he would have known it for the hilarious honor that it was. He probably would have wanted to come on and, you know, be be a character in it had he been alive. I, I know that Simpsons episode is probably one of my favorite, like, portrayals of your father. Just, I, it was one of those things where, like, when I was as young seeing it, that... It was an instant connection for me, and everybody else is kind of like, "Oh, this is weird," but I was like, "This is like perfect." And the way that they did it, it, it still makes me laugh to this day. No, it's hilarious. It's um, and what an honor to to know that somebody you played or or the kind of the way you move through the world is part of the world's conversation about itself, even if it's or maybe especially if it's with and through humor. So, Victoria, I want to let you know the way I discovered your father. It's really plain and simple. Your father and I both love Edgar Allan Poe. Ah, of course. And I remember Netflix used to have a lot of the Roger Corman, Vincent Price films on there. And so one of the first movies I got to see was House of Usher. And I absolutely adored the movie. I thought, I was like, I don't know this guy. He is fantastic. And I knew him by name. Mm. I knew him for the reason that most people knew him. But it was when I saw that, I was like, what else? And so I made myself go through the entire Roger Corman, Vincent Price Poe cycle of, I don't know, it was almost 10 films. It was so many. You had Tales of Terror, Raven, it was Haunted Palace, uh, The Mask of the Red Death. There's so many amazing movies that... Some people may say are ham films or campy films, but I thought these were like the greatest pieces of work ever. Did your father have a favorite Poe story? Did he ever talk about something more than anything else? Um, well, I think there were certain ones that meant a lot. I know, I think Tomb of Ligeia meant a lot, but I think, you know, sometimes the first one we do can have, uh, you know, this special place in our heart. And I think House of Usher was a very special film for him because it, it kind of initiated the the collaboration between he and Roger and really 
let them know that they were on the same page. And and that was a very cool thing. You know, here's this young director who's making these movies on a shoestring, right? But they're having conversations about art and the painting of, you know, Roderick Usher and the house being a character in the movie. So here's something that's being done ostensibly on, you know, a shoestring, and they're having, like, deep philosophical conversations about... Poe and about the meaning of the films and and I think more than almost anything I would say the thing that my dad was so honored and excited by is that he felt that Poe was kind of the great original American voice the first American voice that the rest of the world sat up and took notice from you know before Poe we all looked the Americans looked to Europe as like that's you know that's where everything comes from that's where all the good art comes from that's where the real stuff comes from and after Poe you know people people like uh, European writers like de Maupassant saw Poe and were like wow you know I'm influenced by this guy that was the first time that happened and my dad understood that because uh, of the visual arts that was his great passion and so he knew that took had taken a a long time for Americans to begin to have confidence in their own uh, creativity without saying everything from Europe is better. But in the early 1800s, Poe had done this. And so for my dad to be forever associated with Poe, I mean, people still introduce their students to the stories of Edgar Allan Poe by showing them the Corman Price films. That means, you know, there's my dad forever linked to this person whose work he he admired so deeply. So I think more than even one particular film, it was the whole honor, really, of being forever associated with with an iconic American literary voice. It's not the first iconic American literary voice. I know a lot of people know your father from film and especially as you like the the deep connection with Poe, but he was also a great culinary artist as well. Like he's kind of like this really worldly guy. What would be the favorite dish that he's made for you or that you, a recipe that you still replicate? You know, I think my, my favorite, uh, and it was one of his favorites at the end of his life. It's just to me, those, those recipes that <laughs> take a lot of labor, my dad could be a very labor intensive cook and, and he would, you know, struggle to get something to be what he saw as perfect. And I was like, oh, it's just fine as it is. So for me, the things that I liked were the simple ones that we could make together. And one of those uh, was a recipe that came from a restaurant that still exists. It's in New York called Sardi's. And it's very simple. It's asparagus. And uh, you basically take the asparagus and you sort of shave down the end parts of it so that they're not that sort of chewy, you know, how the end of the asparagus get, kind of get a little bit gross. And then you, you have the asparagus and it's got a lot of butter on it. And then you um, uh, fry an egg or two um, so that it's a little bit runny. And then you uh, put some very, very thinly sliced sharp cheese over it, sharp like Grana Padano or Pecorino Romano or Parmesan, something like that. And then you crack fresh ground pepper over it. And 
and it was a recipe from Sardi's and he would make that as just a simple thing to eat and it's always tasted so delicious. So I would have to say that's probably still one of my go-to recipes because it's so easy to make and just never doesn't taste good. Well, I uh, feel sorry for any of our listeners who haven't had lunch yet because that sounds amazing. (laughs) (laughs) You made me really hungry. (laughs) (laughs) Victoria, what can you tell us about you know, the later years in life when your dad, you know, he opens up, he, he's already done the horror thing. He's still kind of doing the horror thing, but he's really enjoying things. And you mentioned he got to be on the original Batman TV show. He even got to be on the Brady Bunch TV show. Did you get to visit any of these sets with him? You know, that Brady Bunch one, that killed me because I was at summer camp and I got this postcard from my dad. Now, what kid didn't love the Brady Bunch? And that was my era. Oh, my God. You know, I, of course, had the obligatory crush on Peter. And, you know, and I get this, you know, postcard from my dad saying, uh, I've just had so much fun filming the Brady Bunch. And I'm like, what? You filmed the Brady Bunch without me? I didn't go get to meet Peter and Jan? Oh, my gosh. But, you know, I, I my parents were very, very good about me being somebody who didn't see herself as being this sort of special Hollywood kid. So it was very, very rare that I got to miss school for something. I remember one time my dad did this show. uh, It was a sort of made-for-TV movie. It it was called Mooch Goes to Hollywood, and like a million movie stars had little cameo bits as this dog um, wended its way through Hollywood and met all these famous people. And my dad's scene was on the beach and it was at a beach near our beach house and it was going to be filmed on a Monday morning. So I remember this so distinctly because it was like this big deal. I didn't have to go to school that Monday and I got to be an extra on the movie and build the sand castle and um, meet Mooch, which of course was like super exciting. And I would have to say, you know, people always ask me like, wow, who's the most exciting star you've ever met? Bar none. There's no question in my mind, the most exciting star I ever met. It was my, I think, 10th maybe birthday present from my parents. I got to spend the entire day with Lassie. So that was pretty much the best birthday ever. I'm somebody who's an animal person and getting to spend the day with Lassie doesn't get any better than that. Yeah, I don't think many people can say they've had that pleasure. <laughs> no, it was, I mean, you know, that's when you know your parents know you <laughs> because because they knew what to give me. I mean, you know, first of all, what an amazing thing to grow up as I did and have parents who could find a way to make that happen. I mean, unbelievable, right? But that they knew who I was and that they knew that, you know, they could have done a million different things for me, but getting to... Uh, Getting to meet Lassie was not going to get better than that. Victoria, let's take a minute and talk about some things that you're doing because, as I mentioned before, you're this inspirational person. I've noticed you've had appearances on TV, you make public appearances, giving speeches, you spread inspiration, love, and kindness to everybody. And I just want to know a little bit about what you have going on right now. Well, I'm working on a new book, and it's really a book about how. I realized I had to change my life and I kept trying and kept trying and kept trying and nothing was really working. And then really because of that year with my dad, I tried something new. And what I tried was to take the joy that my dad had 
my dad's presence in my life had reminded me was so necessary and turn it into a daily practice. In other words, committing every single day, whether I felt like it or not, whether I was in a crabby mood or not, to show up and practice joy in some way. And from there, my life kind of rolled out in this really interesting way. I not only began to practice joy, which had this phenomenal effect on my life, but I began creating these other practices for three years now i've been intentionally homeless like literally literally i do not have a home people are like yeah so where's your home base i'm like no no when i say i'm homeless i mean i'm homeless i have a storage unit and and i did that really because i I didn't necessarily want to do it but it just i felt like i was being asked to do something and i had no other choice and so i had to show up every single day to whatever the day presented And I was somebody who thought my safety lied in planning and, and, you know, knowing what was coming next. And I had to give that all up. And so all of these practices really began to change my life. And I thought, wow, you know, I tried so hard. I tried everything. If this really works for me, I'm pretty sure it can work for anyone because I was, I thought, pretty unredeemable. And so I began really thinking about what it was and I realized what it was was what I'd learned from my dad all along. My dad showed up to life with this attitude of love. He loved life, and so life loved him back. He loved people. My dad loved people so much, and people loved him back. And what I realize is that we spend so much of our lives looking for something outside of us. And if we can shift our, our perspective a little and actually invite who we really are back into our lives. My dad had the good fortune of really never losing that. He never really lost who he was. So many of the rest of us do because we're trying so hard to be something that the world tells us we should be. My dad had the good fortune of remembering who he was and getting to be who he was and getting paid to be who he was for most of his life. And so I realized that when we create these love-based practices, our lives become filled with the quality that has always been missing. And that quality always comes down to one thing, which is love. And I learned that really, interestingly enough, almost more than anything from horror fans. I was this person who really didn't get the whole horror thing. I don't really like being scared. I don't really get why people want to be scared. And when I began going out and talking about my dad, I thought, oh, my God, all these horror fans are going to you know, eat me alive because they're going to know that I don't like what they like and they're going to think I'm some faker and they're going to say, you know, what are you doing talking to us? We know your dad. You're just his kid. And that's not what happened at all. What happened was that I felt completely embraced and loved by the horror fans. And not only that, I began to see that horror fans had done something kind of amazing that I had forgotten how to do, which was they had created these communities of people who get together to celebrate what they love and do what they love in horror conventions and horror film festivals. And I thought, I want what they've got. And so a big part of my understanding what a practice of love is, a love-based practice is, came from horror fans because I was like, they've never lost track of what they love. I did somehow. And so this is a book that sort of breaks down in really simple ways how to create these very simple love-based practices that can 
fundamentally transform your life. You know, I went from being somebody who was pretty miserable every single day, be trying to be something I wasn't and being this workaholic and all of this crap to being the person who, like, when you described that about me when we first started, I was like, oh my gosh, this must be working, <laughs> you know? <laughs> Like it was a beautiful thing to have that reflected back to me. A friend of mine recently said to me, I don't think of you as a workaholic. And I was like, wow, <laughs> wow, this works. Even just hearing you on this podcast just makes me want to be homeless and just go out <laughs> and live life to the fullest. And I really admire your attitude. And people say I'm energetic and it's funny to see somebody one up you. And so I give you the, uh, the golden crown for that. It's been so great having you on here, and I'm really, really looking forward to this new book. I know you've written some books before. Where's the best place for people to go grab these? So there's a new edition of the biography I wrote about my dad, um, which is Vincent Price, the daughter's biography, about once a month on vincentprice.com. I, uh, because I live on the road, I have to do it when I'm near a printer. I'll put up a, like a quick flash sale, and I'll sell them and, and then send them out and sign them for people. Um, but you can, of course, find them on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, your independent bookseller, IndieBound. And then my book that came out last year is called The Way of Being Lost, and it's really about this whole journey of how my dad's 100th birthday and the horror fans changed my life and helped me create a, a completely different, and choosing to be homeless, choosing to become lost to get found. So that's what that's what that book is about, and it is also, you know, all the usual sources, uh, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, IndieBand, and, uh, and then this new book, They Tell Me, will be out next uh, April, so I'm pretty excited about that. Right around birthday time. Ah, yes. Wow, you did do your homework. I don't even <laughs> tell people when my birthday is, so uh, you did do your homework. Victoria, thank you so very much for coming on here. It's been an absolute pleasure speaking with you. This was so much fun. Thank you so, so much. That wraps up another episode of the All Things Dave podcast. Who is Victoria Price? Well, hopefully you guys know now, and you have a greater look into the life of her father, Vincent Price. I really do cherish this episode. Brian and I have great chemistry, and getting to talk with the daughter of the mad magician, it's just epic. I think the only thing that could come close was if we'd able to do an interview with Rico Browning or his son, or perhaps anyone from the Chapman family. You know, Creature from the Black Lagoon. If you get a chance, check out Brian's podcast. It's called The Terrible Terror Podcast. It's a real fun show with in-depth run-throughs. And hey, you can find several episodes that I'm on. And I did the sideshow, Podcast from Another World, where I cover more Vincent Price. Even joined by Julie. So check out some episodes. You'll definitely find something you like. As for me, you can subscribe to this podcast on any podcast platform. You can find me on Twitter and Facebook. On Twitter, my handle's at Dave underscore Phantom. And on Facebook... Just search up for the All Things Dave podcast page. Give it a like. Give it a follow. Especially if you guys want to see some of the cool pictures I post. So stay tuned. More Vincent Price episodes coming your way as we get closer to his birthday. I'm Phantom Dark Dave, and you've been listening to the All Things Dave podcast. (laughs) 
It's the greatest story in sports. Start dropping straight back. Hit as he throws. Has the ball. It is a I'm Doug Russell, and this is Tales from 1265, an insider's look at football's most storied franchise, a franchise that has had its dynasties. This is the first Super Bowl trophy, and uh, it's something Green Bay can keep. We're going to have a, a new trophy each year. And its rebirths. Every major football decision will be made by Ron Wolf. I realize I'm a Green Bay Packer now, and maybe I can prove that I am worth the first-round pick next year, but just got to be patient. But I was really impressed with the coaching staff, with the whole organization, and with the direction the team is going. I think they, they have a total commitment to winning. Tales from 1265 is presented by Nicolay Law, your local award-winning injury lawyers. If you've been injured, get Nicolay, Wisconsin's winning team of lawyers that will get you back in the game. Tales from 1265 is a production of iHeartRadio Podcasts and is available on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Music, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Safe drivers save up to 20% with insurance. Get a quote at AAA.com slash insurance.